Astonishing Legends is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Mint Mobile, Wondrium, Noom, HelloFresh, Simply Safe, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. We open tonight's show with a poem often read at funerals. Derided by some as unsophisticated, it has nevertheless risen to great fame in the 157 years since it was penned by a government clerk named John Lucky McCreary. The poem is so pervasive that during McCreary's life, the authorship of it was debated for decades, but scholars seem to agree that it was in fact written by him. We're reading it tonight because three verses of it were actually shared by the father of one of the two young ladies at the heart of tonight's story in an epilogue he wrote for the seminal book about this astonishing legend. That book, The Watsika Wonder, was written by E.W. Stevens in 1878, just months after he personally witnessed the events that will be described tonight. Although McCreary revised the poem and republished it 20 years after it was originally written with 16 verses, we preferred his first version from 1863 with 10 verses. There is no death, John Lucky McCreary. There is no death, the stars go down to rise upon some other shore, and bright in heaven's jeweled crown they shine forevermore. There is no death. The dust we tread shall change beneath the summer showers to golden grain or mellow fruit or rainbow-tinted flowers. The granite rocks disorganize to feed the hungry moss they bear. The forest leaves drink daily life from out the viewless air. There is no death. The leaves may fall. The flowers may fade and pass away. They only wait through wintry hours, the coming of the May. There is no death. An angel form walks o'er the earth with silent tread. He bears our best-loved things away, and then we call them dead. He leaves our hearts all desolate. He plucks our fairest, sweetest flowers. Transplanted into bliss, they now adorn immortal bowers. The bird-like voice, whose joyous tones made glad this scene of sin and strife, sings now an everlasting song amid the tree of life. Wherever he sees a smile too bright, or soul too pure for taint of vice, he bears it to that world of light to dwell in paradise. Born unto that undying life, they leave us but to come again. With joy we welcome them, the same except in sin and pain. And ever near us, though unseen, the dear immortal spirits tread, for all the boundless universe is life. There are no dead. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The case of Laurency Venom, a bright young girl of 14 years, has been the subject of much discussion in Watsika during the past year, and there is a good deal in it beyond human comprehension. 
the Iroquois County, Illinois Times, as quoted from the E.W. Stevens book, The Watsika Wonder. Join us tonight for part one of our series on the Watsika Wonder as we take a look at what has been called the first documented case of possession in America. And we're back. Uh, that we are, folks, and we've got a great show tonight. <laughs> Um, who, who was that supposed to be? That was the voice of Tommy Boy. I'll explain later in the show. Don't worry about it. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Just a couple of very quick notes tonight. Forrest, if you'll do the honors. Pint glasses. That's right. We said it out loud, or Forrest did. Here's the deal. The pint glass machine is getting rolling again, and there's a couple of quick things to know. Uh, firstly, that first batch of six collector glasses that we had out a year or two ago came and went pretty quickly. So I, I think they sold out in less than 30 minutes. Uh, we probably didn't make enough of them. Oh. So after some serious thought <laughs> for all the folks that missed the boat on that first set, we're going to print another run of the first six glasses. But those were meant to be one of a kind. So what we're doing is we're printing this new set with different colors. That preserves the originality of the first run, but now we got something new to offer for people who didn't get a chance to get them the first time around. So the second run is also going to be one of a kind, and the last time we'll do those first six characters. Did that make sense? I think I barely followed all of that. But <laughs> okay. Just there's the glasses are coming back. Yes, and the second batch will have different colors to them, so they will be unique when compared to the first batch. That's correct. If you have the first batch, you're probably not going to want the second batch, I honestly, well, because it's the yeah. same characters, but the colors are different. Yeah, yeah people love them, and they break, you know? you got to replace yeah. them. So uh, anyway, yeah. that's right, folks. We're working on getting them printed up in time for October. So keep your ears open and your eyes on our social media, and we'll let you know when those are in the store. And by the way, there will be a new set coming up by the end of the year. Yes, that's right, with uh, six all-new characters from the show. So that's in the pipeline, along with some other fun stuff, which we will, of course, keep you apprised of. There's one other announcement we'd like to make tonight. We'd like to congratulate our other show, The Midnight Library, on surpassing over one million downloads since it launched. Yeah, not bad for 43 episodes. Not bad at all, frankly. We'd like to extend a huge heartfelt congratulations to Miranda Merrick, for a job well done. Absolutely. Season five of The Midnight Library is premiering sometime in October, so stay tuned for that. By the way, the bulk of the revenue for The Midnight Library is generated by their wonderful Patreon page at patreon.com slash midnightlibrary. So head on over there and show your support and get access to bonus content and other goodies courtesy of the library and Madame Merrick herself. It is a great show with a very unusual format and a ton of fascinating and factual macabre information presented by Madame Miranda Merrick, whom I must confess I find darkly alluring. And Ooh. her assistant, by the way, the, the mysterious Mr. Darling, a ah. creature you would not want to meet in a dark alley. Oh, no, especially if he hasn't eaten. Okay, <laughs> folks, well, it's time to dive into tonight's show. Uh, where do we begin, Scott? Well, as we said just a minute or two ago, a lot of people consider this, I guess, the first documented case of possession in America. That is the subtitle to, uh, well, the book, <laughs> one of the books we read. And yeah. a lot of people will say that, but I, I don't know technically if it is. It's a bold claim because obviously, I think you and I believe, people yeah. have been probably possessed since the beginning of time. <laughs> I don't know if that was the first case in America, but... Yeah, but did anyone write it down? That's the question. Documented is the catch, right? Absolutely. In this case, well-documented, mostly, well, primarily by a doctor. It's the story of two young ladies who lived mostly concurrently, who both had a, a lot of 
challenges that they had to deal with, uh, both physically and mentally. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like you'll think, oh, well, this sounds like epilepsy or catalepsy, which was uh, something I just learned about when we started doing this show, possibly mixed with other uh, personality disorders that might not have been identified at the time. But there's more to it than that. On the surface, this isn't a story that you could come to later and say, oh, well, this and this and this explains all of that. This whole thing was just a misunderstanding of the conditions these ladies were facing because there are details that defy explanation if they're accurate. I think that's one of the most fascinating things about it. It's also kind of a spooky story. It is. On the underpinnings of what's actually going on, uh, I thought about this. One pair of parents thinks that this is joyous. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing that's happened to them. Very mysterious, supernatural. It's a blessing from the angels And the other set of parents are wondering if their daughter has just gone completely insane and mad, and will they ever see her again? There's that family aspect of it. And what would you do as a parent if this happened to you? How horrific and possibly mixed with wonder and joy could it be? It certainly would turn your life upside down for the rest of the lives of your family. Yeah, and the other thing about this case is that it's a kind of a touchstone case in the history of both spiritualism and spiritism, which we've talked about spiritualism before. I'm not sure we got real specific about the difference between these two, which we are going to tonight. They were both still in their early days when this was all taking place. I was about to say, the research I just did today and putting it all together, all these different sections we have been uh, pulling from the books and from just extraneous research sources— that this really isn't just a story of one possession or one possible instance of fraud in the psychic mediumship world. It really has all the big players touching this somehow in a connected fashion to the era of psychical research during this time and spiritism, and then leading to cognitive studies, which are so popular today. That's a huge buzzword now. I put a section here called the big guns of psychical research because You'll see towards the end here how I connect all the dots to this one case, as if they were holding hands, all these big names in the field of psychical research at the time, as you could say in the 1870s to probably just after the turn of the century, 1910s, and starts to fade out, I think, into the 20s. That is so cool. I can't wait to hear that, actually. Yeah. It's interesting when all of this stuff connects back together because, and we haven't said it in a while, everything is connected. (laughs) And on top of that, the other thing that's great about this particular story, uh, it's really the story of two women, but the the one at the center of it is Mary Lorancy Venom, or Rancy, as they called her. She is the primary character that we'll be talking about, and one of the main books that we consulted for this is a contemporaneous account. It was written uh, just three or four months after this all went down mm-hmm. by somebody who was actually a witness to much of it. He wasn't there the whole time, but he was there a good deal of it. So so tonight's story is about something known as the Watsika Wonder. I don't know how many people mm-hmm. have heard of uh, Watsika, Illinois. It's not something I'd heard of until this story, but I think locals probably knew of it. In fact, our editor knew about it because she is familiar with the area. The book that we're calling on for this is an old book. It's called The Watsika Wonder, A Startling and Instructive Chapter in the History of Spiritualism by E.W. Stevens. This was originally published in the Religio Philosophical Journal in 1878. And it's in the public domain, so everybody knows, but we will be citing it as often as we can. The actual cover of the original old version of this, which one of our researchers found in the research core, has a a longer, more involved title that I wanted to share. It is 
The Watsika Wonder, a startling and instructive psychological study and well-authenticated instance of angelic visitation. <laughs> well, they did love their long titles. Wait, I'm only a third of the way through. Oh, I'm sorry. Then it also says, a narrative of the leading phenomena occurring in the case of Mary Lawrence or Lawrence Venom, V-E-N-N-U-M, by E.W. Stevens. But wait, there's more. Mm. With comments by Joseph Rhodes Buchanan, MD, Professor of Physiology, Anthropology, and Physiological Institutes of Medicine in the Eclectic Medical College, New York, D.B. Kavner, MD, S.B. Britton, MD, and Hudson Tuttle, who apparently is not an MD, Religio-Philosophical Publishing House, Chicago. So all that stuff's on the cover of the old one. I'm sure they will all appreciate you mentioning them. I don't want them turning over in their graves. <laughs> or visiting us spiritually. That might also be problematic. But let me not ask you about where you understood the story, but the name, because it's an unusual name. Do you remember where you first heard the name? Oh, Watsika, you mean? Yeah, just the Watsika Wonder, if that ever popped up. I didn't know the story was called the Watsika Wonder, but I had somebody was telling me about Watsika mm -hmm. in our research core. Uh, it was something we were researching a few months ago, and somebody said, oh, right. you know what you should think about this? It was a local story that was familiar to this researcher. So then I went out and got this book called Watsika, and the cover of it is just amazing. It's by this author, David St. Clair, who was a big deal in the late 70s and 80s, doing bestsellers and that sort of thing. I want to show you this for us, though. You can look at this creature on the front of it. It looks more like an alien or something from uh, one of uh, Seth Breedlove's movies, which has absolutely nothing to do with this story. Klaus Baratu Niktu. Yeah. This thing has a, it looks like a turquoise thumbnail for a head. It, whatever's mm. happening here, nothing like this is portrayed in the actual story. So. Well, uh, my interpretation is that the face of this uh, visage, this person on the cover, is representative of a window to the spirit world, which is what we're talking about here, except that in this case, and actually another connected case, it has to do with a, an altered state of being or a fit or a spell, as they were called back then, and the ability to communicate with spirits, and not only that, have some psychical ability attached with that, the knowing of unknowable things by that individual. So that's all very interesting. But I must say, when you proposed the Watsika Wonder, it was vaguely familiar to me. I'd heard of the story before, the name didn't click, and I thought you were proposing to do a story on another psychic talking horse. <laughs> like Lady Named Wonder. the Watsika oh, yeah. Wonder. That's right. But I, I loved them both, yes. Uh, and I, I will do a story on any talking animal because I, I love that uh, idea. Well, it's no mistake, I think, that the word wonder was a popular word yeah. back in this era to describe some things of this nature. Uh, Lady Wonder was not too far off from this. I mean, it was later, but still, Wonder right. had its heyday. It's not a word you hear much anymore. And what we'll see here is that it's not easily dismissed, I think, by the people at the time who were authorities on this. And certainly, you know, people think like, well, people back then were really gullible. Well, there were skeptical investigators back then into the paranormal and the supernatural, and they were just as skeptical, although their beliefs were slightly different depending on where they came from. And there are, of course, detractors and people calling these people uh, frauds and hucksters and, and carnival barkers and showmen and trying to get attention and trying to make a million dollars once again off this kind of stuff. But we'll see that that's not uh, so easily dismissed. Now, the book that I read was also called The Watsika Wonder, but the subtitle is America's First Documented Case of Possession, and you can find this as a Kindle edition, 
This one has only got two and a half stars, but doesn't mean anything. I like this edition, this digital copy, because you get some other things with it that you did not get with your digital download. You find this out when you start looking at stuff that's in the public domain. The rules for republishing that, well, they're virtually non-existent. So right. even in the version that I had, it was clear that it was all scanned or uh, processed by a bot. There's a billion typos in it. Uh, there's names in it that are right. misspelled over and over again to the point where I had to look them up because I thought, is this a different character I don't know about? And it's like, no. It's the, the word Roff, R-O-F-F, was spelled as Kofi, like Kofi Annan, K-O-F-I, mm -hmm. multiple times in the book. I was like, wait, who is Mr. Right. Kofi? I don't understand. I think a lot of times people say these texts and they're like, oh, this is public domain. I can reprint it and make a little money or something. And then it just gets well, out right. there because we also have, though, an original copy or a PDF of the original journal, which one of our researchers mm -hmm. found, which I was then able to go and cross-check things and make sure there was not, in fact, a Kofi involved in this story, and there was not. So I will say, though, with this digital copy, though, what I liked about it, as I was saying, is that you get other things with it. And that it is an odd proposition here, as we found out with public domain stuff. In this case, this volume is published as a Kindle edition by Crusoe Publishing Classics. And I believe that might be Scott Crusoe C-R-U-S-O-E, as in Robinson Crusoe, hmm. after he gets a lot of that. But he lists himself as the illustrator, and there are other photos, contemporary sketches of the people involved, some photos that I think he added himself from being at the house. And they're a little blurry, and some aren't great. But the thing I found most beneficial to this edition was that Crusoe Publishing here put together the original scans, I think of the original publication of the book. So you have scans, picture scans, of the original story as published by Dr. E. Winchester Stevens in 1885, or it's not long after that. It looks very old, but you're actually seeing pictures of a very early edition of the story. So that is the full original Watsika wonder story written by Dr. Stevens. But then you also have an overview of the story and a retelling of it by H. Addison Bruce, in 1908. Now, Mr. Bruce was a journalist who specialized in psychological writing and coverage of that field. And that's what he specialized, but he also had a great interest in psychical phenomena of the time. So he covered a lot of stuff from a journalistic standpoint, but of course he had a POV on it. And his findings we're going to talk about towards the end of the conclusions, because what I find interesting is that now it's 1908, not 1877 when it started to happen to this family. He's now commenting later, and the field of psychology has changed. There have been new ideas presented, and he looks at it in that light, and that's fascinating. And also, of course, it's 1908, so we've come a long ways since then. But you can see the evolution of how these things are looked at by the medical profession and those who report on it. So you have that overview and his retelling of the story in this edition and then you also have something else that he wrote called Ghost Hunters of Yesterday and Today, also published in 1908, I believe. So that's an overview of people who researched these things, where they were at, what the thinking was at that time, and how it may apply to this case as well decades later. 
Now, did you say that that one indicated that the original story was 1885? At least in the listing on the Amazon page for this copy, and certainly we'll have a link to that, yeah. is that the story was written by Dr. E. Winchester Stevens in 1885. The edition that we have that uh, we yeah. got from the Research Corps is dated 1878, which is right after this all went down. Okay, so I think the copy that I have, and, and what's interesting is that I'm not sure you've seen this because the one I read, again, that's a digital copy we've not, uh, we, Scott and I don't share <laughs> logins for oh, right. Amazon. No. I have a digital stuff. copy, but it's different from the one that you have. And then we also have a PDF of scans of the original journal. I didn't think to show you this because both you and I love old books. Now, you sent me a screenshot of your edition here, and that looks a lot older. The one I have does look, yeah, later 1880s. Okay. At least, but it's vintage. So it's pretty cool looking. Yeah. And so you just have an earlier publication than I did. Most expensive rare book I have was a, is a copy <laughs> Flatland? of oh, Flatland. Yes. Oh, very cool. And, yes. Uh, it's a first edition, actually. I put some pictures of that on social media a few weeks ago, uh, and it, it was published in 1884. It's an 1884 edition. So Same time. Well, this is 1885. Yeah. But the, our story tonight first becomes known to the local Watsika region, which is about 85 miles or so due south of Chicago. In my notes, I have uh, Addington Bruce saying at the time the population was about 1,500. Yeah. So it's small town America or suburban America outside of a large city at the time. And this is important in that people know each other. It's much, much larger, I think, than, uh, well, at this time, maybe twice as large as uh, Villisca, Iowa at the time. And uh -huh. I make this point because it's close to the turn of the century here, certainly 1908 was. And people all talk, they gossip, they knew each other's business. It's a small town, but also a, a kind of a larger village, you know, larger than a village. And so, People know each other, but different than the neighborhood that the Arnold Estate was from in the Conjuring series, where right. if somebody lived down the road, you bet they pretty much knew each other, but they're not that close. It's not like houses right next to each other, but there's a good chance that they did know each other. In this case, uh, some of the characters involved do know each other, but vaguely, very casually. So it's that small town America, but as news of this happened first in the neighborhood and as that expanded and stories were picked up, it became a nationally known story. I want to talk a little bit about uh, something that we brought up on all the way back since we started the show. I think the first time we mentioned this was during our Amelia Earhart series, which is I think episodes three or mm -hmm. four or five or something like that. And that's confirmation bias. And as much as the book and the approach of the book the that's at the core of both of the books that we read, the, the main story by E.W. Stevens, who was there, I want to make that right. clear. It's a contemporaneous account by a gentleman who was there. As much as it tries to be maybe unbiased, it's there is some significant confirmation bias mm -hmm. in it. I want to posit that out of the gate. It seems very biased to me as though it's trying to convince you that these events occurred. And it, it's hard to know, we've talked about this before, if that kind of bias comes from the fact that they actually experienced this in person, they're a thousand percent convinced it's real. And now they're just trying to make sure that anyone that comes along and reads their account of it believes that because mm -hmm. they actually saw it. Or is it being presented in a certain way because the author of the book, Dr. Stevens, was a spiritualist mm -hmm. or a believer in spiritualism, and his viewpoint tainted the way that he took in the evidence that was happening in the case? Something to think about. Hey, my name is Esther, otherwise known as Mephzilla, from beautifully haunted New Orleans. And when I'm not herding cats or hunting the ghosts of the French Quarter, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. And now, back to the show. 
people of the time who were psychical researchers, you could say, uh, supernatural investigators who went to go debunk some pretty famous cases. One, Dr. Richard Hodgson was sent to India to investigate Madame Blavatsky, and he thought she was a fraud right. by some of the physical mediumship. Now, here's the difference in that people like that believed that some of these things were possible, more so mental mediumship than physical mediumship. Physical mediumship was the presentation of objects and aportation of objects, I, I think with the levitation of the old tin horn and the ringing yes. of the bells and stuff like that, or things rattling. That was more theatrical and sideshow stuff. And people like Hodgson were out to go reveal that because they believed that there were aspects of it which may be true and worthy of study, but they want to sift out the the untruths and the showmanship from the real stuff that was happening. So their attitude of a lot of these researchers here, also somewhat of H. Addington Bruce writing about these things, is that they believe some things are possible. So their mind is a bit open, but they're also skeptical inquirers. They are going to find out the truth and they have debunked famous cases or famous fraudsters. But at the same time, they're not a quote unquote debunker because to us, the difference between somebody who's healthily skeptical and a skeptical inquirer is that they still keep an open mind. Like our new friend, Kenny Biddle, who I believe has a really healthy attitude about it. He's just never seen anything that's really convinced him, but he's on the lookout. He's keeping an open mind about it. And that's what you can say about some of these researchers is that a debunker, especially of uh, modern times, goes in with a closed mind that they know this is hokum. It can't possibly be true. None of this can. So there's got to be some fishing line and uh, someone ringing a bell with their toes. There's some trick behind it because none of this can be real. Whereas the attitude that we're going to look at tonight is that some of this may be possible. Let's find out what really is going on. To that end, I wanted to share the second paragraph in the primary, the core document, which is the same in both books that we read here. I thought this was interesting because it, it talks right out of the gate about how a story like this, when it comes from a child, is easier to believe. It says, quote, the innocence of childhood is often the sublimest argument in the establishment of a great truth. And the unpresuming simplicity of youth sometimes may become the channel of phenomena calculated to shake the skepticism and prejudice of bigotry and to humble the conceit of the pompously wise. Now, I do agree when a younger person is involved in a story like this, you do have a tendency to maybe want to believe it more because you think there's less pretense, there's less going on. But in the other case, children can exaggerate. So right. this is what I'm talking about with the confirmation bias in this book, because also at the end of this, it's like shake the skepticism and prejudice of bigotry and to humble the conceit of the pompously wise. What he's saying is the folks that say this is all hokum and we shouldn't even investigate it, he's mad at them. And he's making that clear mm -hmm. at the bottom of the second paragraph on the first page, Whatever, you know, which is a little bit what we did. We just said, don't come in right. debunking, but I'm just saying there's definitely a tone to this book overall. Yeah. But let's get back to when this all took place. I'm going to do something I haven't done in a while. I used to like to do when we started out the show about <laughs> a, the, a day in the history. So this uh. story started 144 years ago on July 11th, 1877. And it was an ongoing event for the odd duration of 10 months and 10 days, which I thought was very interesting. People who are into numbers and numerology may see significance with that. But I thought you were going to use your old-timey newsreel voice to announce this stuff. Oh, no, I, I don't know that. Okay. The oh, March of Time. Okay. Time marches yeah, on. Yeah, Our eyes yeah, turn yeah. to the world of sports. We'll work on that, yes. So i got to get okay. better on that. <laughs> so July 11th, 1877, there were a few other historical events that happened which set the stage for what's going on in the world. Uh, Kate Edger becomes New Zealand's first 
first woman graduate and the first woman in the British Empire to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree. Scientist and inventor Alexander Graham Bell, at the age of 30, weds Mabel Hubbard, who was 19, at the Hubbard Estate in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She later became known as Ma Bell. Uh, They stayed married Uh, the whole time. Also, (laughs) there was the Battle of Clearwater, which took place in Idaho County between General O.O. Howard and the Nez Perce tribe that eventually led to their defeat and their territory. They were non-treaty Nez Perce, where their territory was reduced by nine-tenths in size. uh, And that was a particularly unfortunate event there. In, uh, up in the Pacific Northwest that was going on. So it gives you an idea, though, of the climate over the country overall. So who is this story about? It is about Mary Lorancy Venom. No, not like the movie Venom, but a Venom, V-E-N-N-U-M. <laughs> She's known at the time as Lorency Venom. Yes. Our good friend Gled said, sounds like a fancy writing paper. Yes, Lurency, it does. Venom. Like Vellum. Or Venom. I, I think he was saying Vellum. Uh, also, Lorency to me, looks a lot like lunacy which is unfortunate, but that's an aspect of this story. And also the Venom part, which is not V-E-N-O-M, it's V-E-N-N-U-M. That's right. I know a lot of people are just going to hear us. They're not going to see the words coming out of our mouths. Mary or uh, Rancy, or I guess if you say Lurency, it could be Rancy. No, I'm going to say Rancy. I'm going to think the nickname was Rancy, like Nancy, right? Yes. So we could say Lurency, but she's Mm -hmm. Rancy. If you're doing the nickname nickname. there. She was born April 16th, 1864 in Milford Township, about seven miles south of Watsika. There are some amazing pictures of her off of Ancestry.com. We're going to try to share some of those, which I think since they're public, we can do that. Her father was Thomas Jefferson or T.J. Venom. He was born in May of 1832 in Pennsylvania. And her mother was Lorinda Jane Smith, born in 1837 in St. Joseph County, Indiana. Those two got married in December of 1855 and had Mary Lurency, or Rancy, 10 years later after they got married. Her dad was 32 when she was born and her mom, 27. She was not their only kid, but she's the one that we're going to be talking about tonight. Stevens points out, again, in his book entitled Watsika Wonder, and then all those subtitles, depending on which edition (laughs) you're looking at, that Rancy had never really been sick aside from a mild case of the measles about four years before this particular legend takes place. So now we get into the details of what happened. And one of the very first events that happened was a few days before all the big stuff started to take off, Rancy said that there were people in her bedroom at night and that she could feel them breathing on her face as they called Rancy I Rancy to her over and over. It woke her up and her mom had to come and sleep with her to get her to calm down. That was only the beginning. On July 11th of 1877, Rancy had what would appear to be her very first epileptic or possibly cataleptic seizure. Right. She was sitting with her mother sewing and she complained that she started to feel ill and then fell to the floor in this seizure. Yes. And when she fell to the floor, she was very rigid. And I I guess she laid that way for five hours. This happened again on July 12th. Now, there is a difference between epilepsy and catalepsy, which I actually hadn't heard of catalepsy until we started doing this research. Epilepsy is obviously a known condition. It's been around since long before 1877, with reference to folks experiencing the symptoms from it as far back as 2000 BC, including the medical texts of the Hippocratic Collection from ancient Greece. And catalepsy is different. Now, there's books coming out about epilepsy during this exact time period as medicine was working to untangle how it worked. But doctors were making it as a diagnosis already by this point. 
And that research was almost exactly concurrent with Rancy's condition. So it's hard to know how informed the people around her were about advancements in its cause and symptoms if that's what was afflicting her. Yeah, that's a really good point in that people then had a limited knowledge, especially a family who doesn't have any medical background. But of course, they know what it looks like to them, and it's their child. So they are paying very close attention to everything that's going on with her and would relay this, and it would be seen in person by a doctor of the time, Dr. Stevens. But while this was actually happening, uh, July 11th, 1877, Lurency was 13 to 14 years old at the time. And this is the first thing that ever really happened to her that caused alarm to her family. And as we said, the first time it happened, she passed out on the floor, became rigid for five hours and unconscious. And it happened again the next day, except this next day, what was interesting is that this time, and I couldn't gather from the description from the book whether it happened while she was in her trance or after she woke up. You'll see two different accounts of this at different areas of research, but while she's in this trance, or at least that's what I read from my book here, is that uh, she said she was in heaven and in the company of numerous spirits whom she described as some angels, one of them being a sister and another a brother who died when she was just three. So that's the next time that this happened, but these fits increased in frequency. And so they could last from an hour up to eight hours per day and as many as three to 12 times a day. Yes. And this became a huge concern for the family, of course. One of the seminal books about epilepsy that came out back during this time period was called The Borderlands of Epilepsy. And that was written by Sir William Richard Gowers. It actually wouldn't be published until 30 years after tonight's story takes place. So that gives you an idea of the big picture. Here's something that we do know from Stephen's account. It's that Rancy had, as Forrest said, some strange visions during this time. Listen to this quote from The Watsika Wonder by E.W. Stevens. Lying as if dead, she spoke freely, telling the family what persons and spirits she could see, describing them and calling some of them by name. Among those mentioned were her sister and brother, for she exclaimed, Oh, mother, can't you see little Laura and Bertie? They're so beautiful. Bertie died when Laurency was but three years old. She had many of these trances describing heaven and the spirits, or the angels as she called them. Sometime in September, she became free from them and seemed to the family to be quite well again. Here's what's interesting, and I want to be absolutely clear here. I'm quoting mm -hmm. John Keel's business card and something that he said uh, frequently, which is, we are not an authority on anything. <laughs> so mm, just want right. to make that clear. <laughs> in moving forward here with regard to this case and the way that it is intertwined with epilepsy. We're not authorities on epilepsy, catalepsy, nor any medical condition, but some cursory research has pointed us to the fact that hallucinations can and are, in fact, a symptom of epilepsy. We were able to find numerous peer-reviewed papers acknowledging that, as well as multiple personal accounts on epilepsy forums where patients described complex hallucinations that would happen during seizures. Frequently, they would include feeling like time was rushing by or slowing down mm -hmm. or that reality was folding in on itself. So we want to be clear from the outset, we're acknowledging that part of what Rancy was experiencing may have been related to that. What we found fascinating is that if the details of some of what are being characterized as hallucinations in some of these cases are accurate, there was information being imparted that in theory, there would be no way for Rancy to have knowledge of it. That's mm -hmm. when you have to ask yourself, is it possible there's something more going on in this case? 
But getting back to our story, these attacks that Rancy was having, which may have been epileptic or cataleptic seizures, they continued for a couple of weeks, happening, as Forrest said, up to a half dozen times a day. And when they were done, she would describe heaven and spirits, often calling them angels. So coming back to the E.W. Stevens book, I wanted to add that aside from the confirmation bias that I felt like it had, it's Mm -hmm. also presented very much from one perspective. And that perspective is short on the specificity of details relating to what the outside world thought about what was going on. It's also written in third person. It's hard to tell what part of the text Stevens had a hand in. The mm. gist of all of it was that a lot of folks thought that Rancy should be committed. Well, yeah, because that's the only option that they had. If doctors couldn't find a physical cause of your symptoms, they didn't really have much of an understanding at that time, or at least a deeper understanding of psychosomatic conditions, which is physical ailments brought on by a psychological condition or trauma. Yes. Yeah, you can be depressed and people may see you have a depressed expression on your face and you might seem that way, but usually there's no physically outward expression of depression other than lethargy and some of the the more common things we know about it. When you have these fits and rigidity up to five hours, uh, several times a day, that that's definitely a, a physical condition. But what is the mental link to that? They didn't know much about that then. So even when they examined her for this rigidity, they could find no physical causes for this condition. There was no injury, uh, nothing had happened. She didn't fall down and bump her head. There was nothing physically that they could see that was wrong with her. So the other option was this must be a form of insanity. And the only cure at that time was to have her committed to an insane asylum. With Stevens, his take on it was being a spiritist or spiritualist, he seemed to feel that that option was not being fairly evaluated. And he implies that folks went way too quickly down the road that she should be committed and that that was a closed-minded approach. Now, that said, with the benefit of hindsight, most everything we've heard up to this point in the story sounds like epilepsy or catalepsy. So even if you concluded this was not a paranormal incident, committing Rancy to an asylum would absolutely not have been the right course of action either. So even if you thought Stevens was too far out there with his own theories, his desire to keep her from being committed would actually have been better for her. Right, right. But nevertheless, she went through nearly two months of these attacks where she sometimes uh, described passing into a state of ecstasy during Mm -hmm. the seizures. So Forrest, I've already brought it up, and we've talked about it over the years Mm -hmm. on several episodes about spiritualism and spiritists, but I do feel that it would be unfair not to do a a little bit of an overview on it for listeners that maybe this is the first episode of our show they're hearing. (laughs) That's true. We have to keep that in mind. Not everybody starts at episode one, oh, God bless them, and goes (laughs) all the way to 215 in order. Uh, So if we do repeat stuff or different ideas, our longstanding audience, thank you so much for listening, but also keep that in mind. And I myself wanted to know the difference between spiritism and spiritualism, which we covered in the Ouija series a little bit with the Fox sisters. It's connected, but these ideas are slightly different and the definitions are slightly different. So rather than me trying to uh, explain that, I'm just going to paraphrase from the wiki entry on spiritism uh, just to give people a background on that. Spiritism is a philosophical doctrine and progressive body of knowledge established in France in the 1850s by the French teacher, educational writer, and translator Hippolyte Léon Denisard Rivel. Mm. And more people would know him under his pen name, Alan Kardec, and it's K-A-R-D-E-C. Uh, but he wrote books on the nature and origin, uh, the destiny of spirits, and their relation with the corporeal world. So that was his line, and that there's a connection there between the spirit world and the physical, real world we experience today. What is that going on there? Uh, well, his works are the result of the study 
of mediumistic phenomena. So that's our angle in here to this philosophy and his writing. Something's going on that we can analyze through the activities of mediums. This is funny, like a lot of these people, and I love this angle. He initially believed all this was baloney, that it was all of a fraudulent nature, all this mediumistic stuff. But by questioning several mediums in a trance on several occasions, he then started to compile and compare the synthesized answers obtained from spirits into a body of knowledge known as the codification. And continuing on here with the description, it speaks of the constant need to investigate the world around us, which is science, to make sense of our findings, philosophy. And this is, of course, the entry here, uh, putting these terms and uh, conditions on his motivations here, and to then apply them to our day-to-day living so as to improve ourselves and the world around us, which is religion. So this approach is often referred to as the triple aspect of spiritism, the conjoining of science, philosophy, and religion. So consequently, spiritism is a moral doctrine that strengthens the religious sentiments and, in general, belongs to all religions, not any one in particular. Uh, Spiritist philosophy postulates that humans, along with all other living beings and essentially immortal spirits, include them too, that temporarily inhabit physical bodies, which is what we're talking about tonight, for several necessary incarnations to attain moral and intellectual improvement. Let me say that again. Spiritist philosophy postulates that humans, along with all other living beings, are essentially immortal spirits. As Bob Monroe would say from the Monroe Institute, we are not our bodies. We're just a vessel. Our real being, our real existence is in the spirit world. So we are essentially immortal spirits that temporarily inhabit physical bodies for several necessary incarnations. That to me sounds like reincarnation and past lives. Picking up here again, to attain moral and intellectual improvement. We need to go through this again and again. This an inhabitation of a physical body to improve ourselves spiritually. It also asserts that disembodied spirits, through passive or active mediumship, may have beneficent or malevolent influence on the physical world. We don't know. And that reminds me of what, Scott? The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts. Exactly. Yes. Which was such an eye-opener. When you read that one, it's like, it's not all fun-loving guidance and positive vibes, and it's not all dark demonic energy. It can be really a gray area, and I think that's what a lot of people who study this come into contact. Like, what's being said here? What is the real motivation of this unknowable spirit world? What do they really want? What's going on here, and is it really good for us or not? Should we embrace this? or shun it. And then the entry finishes up with the first time this word appears, spiritism, appeared was in Kardec's book, The Spirit's Book, which sought to distinguish spiritism from spiritualism. So there is a difference. I don't know if we clearly explained the difference there between the two, and I didn't fully understand it. I was definitely trying to avoid that, uh, but it seems like we should. <laughs> what I was going to say, though. <laughs> we should avoid uh, it? No. Or we, I think you're... Uh, avoid avoid uh, getting into the weeds of that. I, I don't want to get off topic too much, but I think this is a good point to differentiate between the two. Now, I didn't really drill down and go point by point, but here's where I think I'm going to set you up for a good definition here. Spiritualism, to me, is more of a religious movement of the era, whereas spiritism is more concept and methodology. I'm going to see if this aligns with that. I I did find this website called the imhu.org. That's the Integrative Mental Health 
for you website. And on this webpage here, they have a difference between spiritism and spiritualism. Both spiritism and spiritualism believe that the spirit world exists and spirits have an impact on human beings. The impact, as you just said, may be positive or negative, informative or deceptive. Both spiritism and spiritualism agree that we continue to live on after physical death in Mm -hmm. spirit world. Both believe in psychic or paranormal abilities like clairvoyance that make it possible for gifted psychics to see what is invisible to most people. Both spiritism and spiritualism believe that spiritual healing has many forms and can have a very positive impact on physical health. However, spiritualism existed before spiritism. Thus, spiritism can be considered an offshoot of spiritualism, but with a different mission. Spiritism is oriented towards supporting spiritual evolution in concrete ways. Spiritism has a coherent philosophy and cogent principles about how to live together to achieve spiritual growth. Right. Spiritualism, in its origins, was oriented towards exploring the unusual phenomena of spirit contact. It has no cohesive philosophy or principles for living in its origins. Right. So to me, spiritism is more the methodology for studying this and gaining knowledge and uh, wisdom from it, from this interaction. Now, I'll just uh, read the first uh, few lines here from the wiki entry on spiritualism, because it encapsulates what we're also talking about here, and it helps define it for me and you and the listeners as well, I believe. Uh, Spiritualism is a religious movement based on the belief that the spirits of the dead exist and have both the ability and the inclination to communicate with the living. The afterlife, or the quote-unquote spirit world, is seen by spiritualists not as a static place, but as one in which spirits continue to evolve. So it's not just heaven where everyone's sitting on clouds and you're playing a harp and that's the end of it. Right. (laughs) You are continuing to evolve in this other world, but as spirits. The Definition goes on to explain these two beliefs that contact with spirits is possible and that spirits are more advanced than humans. Very important thing to keep in mind as we continue with the story. They're more advanced than us. This leads spiritualists to a third belief that spirits are capable of providing useful knowledge about moral and ethical issues, as well as about the nature of God. And some spiritualists will speak of a concept which they refer to as quote-unquote, spirit guides, specific spirits, often contacted, who are relied upon for spiritual guidance. That happens in tonight's episode. Spiritism, a branch of spiritualism developed by Alan Kardec, who we just talked about, and today practiced mostly in continental Europe and Latin America, especially in Brazil, emphasizes reincarnation. Isn't that interesting? It's still going on. Yeah. Whereas spiritualism, that seems like a, you know, 1850s Fox sisters kind of thing. Spiritism still goes on to a degree. And I suppose uh, spiritualism does as well. I saw some campgrounds and stuff yeah. in, in the course of research for this show. There's places people still go every year and uh, they do spiritualistic activity. <laughs> well, as it says here, by 1897, spiritualism was said to have had more than 8 million followers in the United States and Europe, uh, mostly drawn from the middle and upper classes. So it's not just a lowbrow type of endeavor. A lot of uh, educated people believed in this stuff too, which is what we're going to see in that doctors and respectable townsfolk, people highly respected in town, believed that this was possible. It wasn't just some set of ideals and principles relegated to the woo-woos out there and the people who believed in the fairies and elves and all that kind of silly business. This was considered serious study by educated people. 
and the attitudes have changed a little bit, but they're coming back around again. Well, let's get around to the players in this story. And this is very important to understand is who all these people are and trying to keep up with them. There's not a ton of them, but we wanted to paint a very clear picture so that you understood who was in the game and for what reason. The book describes how most of the town wanted Laurency committed, but there were some folks in town who felt that taking Rancy away from her family was too hasty a decision and that more spiritual angles of the cause of what was happening to her should be explored. This is where things start to get weird. I mean, at least mm-hmm. it's where, I mean, they get weird all through here, but <laughs> it's, yeah, right. it's a cliche well, for me to say that, but it, it does seem like they start to get really weird at this point. And uh, Laurency's mother, I believe, really didn't want to have her committed because people knew what that meant. You yeah. were locked away and that was the end of it. They threw away the key essentially. Yeah. And they weren't great at helping you from that point forward, no. as you'll hear. The gentleman who thought he might know someone who could help in this case was a man named Asa Barry Roff, R-O-F-F, who also lived in Watsika. He is the one who planned to bring in Dr. E.W. Stevens of Janesville, Wisconsin, to investigate Rancy's case. Stevens being the author of the book that's our primary source for this legend. But why did he want to bring him in? Let's find out. Well, when Rancy's family, the Venom family, moved to Watsika, they lived about 40 rods from the home of Asa Roth and his wife, Dorothy Ann Roth. I had to look up what a rod is. No dad jokes, please. I <laughs> Honestly, I couldn't figure it out. I, I did finally uh, find a description here on Wikipedia. It's related to surveying. The rod or perch or pole, sometimes also a lug, is a surveyor's tool and unit of length of various historical definitions, often between three and eight meters. So if that's not big enough for you. In mm-hmm. modern U.S. customary units, it is defined as 16 and a half U.S. survey feet, equal to exactly one 320th of a surveyor's mile, Or a quarter of a surveyor's chain. Good to know. Uh, Yeah, so there's all this information that explains how it works. The perfect acre is a rectangular area of 43,560 square feet, bounded by sides 660 feet, which is a furlong long, Mm -hmm. and 66 feet wide. This is uh, 220 yards or 22 yards, or equivalently, 40 rods and 4 rods. Here we are again with 10 months and 10 days. Now we're at 40 Mm -hmm. rods and 4 rods. An acre is therefore 160 square rods or 10 square chains. So I guess there's some survey nerds out there, but my guess is that this means they lived about a fifth of a mile apart, which in my mind doesn't seem that far, but in a town of 1500, it probably is. But Stevens describes their proximity to each other in the book as follows. April 1st, 1871, when they moved into Watsika, and this is the Venoms, they were located about 40 rods from the residence of A.B. Roth. So 40 rods away, whatever that exactly means. So I I guess a fifth of a mile and possibly less is at the extreme opposite ends of a very small town. But the point is, while they were acquainted, the Roth and the Venom family in very loose ways weren't sitting around playing blind man's bluff or puss in a corner. (laughs) Those are parlor games from the time. I did did look those up. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were making a dad joke. Sorry. No, no. Puss in a corner was a very popular game. H. Addington Bruce in his overview and his commentary on the original story would say, described it a couple of times at least as being people living on the opposite ends of town. Yeah. So to them, yeah, they weren't close by in that perhaps it's a fifth of a mile, whatever it is. A lot of these folks walked. This walking to the Roth residence is going to be an interesting ordeal, as we'll see here coming up. But to them, though, yeah, they lived on the other side of town. They weren't exactly just down the street from these folks. It was a bit of a walk or a bit of a travel to get to each other's houses. They only had a passing relationship, according to Stevens there. In fact, listen to this excerpt from the book. 
The family remained at this place during the summer. The only acquaintance ever had between the two families during the season was simply one brief call of Mrs. Roth for a few minutes on Mrs. Venom, which call was never returned, and a formal speaking acquaintance between the two gentlemen. Since 1871, the Venom family have lived entirely away from the vicinity of Mr. Roth's and never nearer than now on extreme opposite limits of the city. Yeah. The implication here is they looked into it and these folks sort of knew who each other was, but that was about the extent of it. Now, here's the thing about the Roths. They had a daughter too, like Laurency or Rancy, a daughter that was seemingly possessed. And so, again, we're, t- we're talking about two different people here. The The star of this story is Laurency or Rancy Venom, whose mm-hmm. first name is also Mary, but we're just going to call her Rancy. And then the daughter of the Roths, her first name is Mary. Mary mm-hmm. Roth. Now, from when she was just six months old, she had what Stephen's book described as fits or spells in which her pupils would dilate and her muscles would twitch, but only briefly. These events would also be punctuated by what sure sounds a lot like us to be epileptic seizures. She had them on up until she grew older, even 10 years old, and in between the seizures, she would be seemingly fine. She was considered, as Stephen says, well-advanced in her learning, and she learned music, too, and was quite fond of it. And her parents noticed that by the time Mary Roth was 15, she was frequently very depressed just prior to when the seizures would occur. They took her to several local doctors, but ultimately she was sent to an asylum in Peoria, Illinois, where she received a treatment that at the time was called water treatment. Mm Mm-hmm. For this, the patient would be alternated from a tub of freezing cold ice water into a tub of water that was literally boiling. Mary Roth was subjected to this for 18 months. It did not cure her. Eventually, Mary Roth apparently took to bleeding herself with leeches, and she decided that she wanted the blood, all the blood, out of her body. And she would place the leeches herself on her temples, for example, She reportedly treated them like pets. It is common in catatonic schizophrenia and may also occur in epilepsy, hysteria, and cerebellar disorders. It may also be induced by hypnosis. The patient may sit with the hands flat on the knees and the head bowed or may remain in an awkward and uncomfortable position. The patient is not necessarily unaware of what is going on but does not respond. This apathetic condition may end as suddenly as it begins. At this point here, what you're saying essentially is catalepsy is more of a source from a psychological condition or state, whereas epilepsy is more biological in nature, but uh, biochemically electrical. Yes. Yes. And this also goes on to say about catalepsy, quote, care must be used in conversations held within the patient's hearing. Total apathy does not indicate a loss of ability to hear or see what is going on. Sometimes it is of great help to these patients to have someone sit quietly beside them so that they are aware that someone cares and is genuinely Mm. interested in their welfare. So anyway, I I think that's fascinating because there's comparisons made between Mary Roth and Mary Laurency Venom Mm -hmm. about them having the same condition. But it seems to me that the descriptions of what Mary Laurency Venom or Rancy goes through is closer to catalepsy most of the time because she is described as becoming very rigid. Whereas Mary Roth seems to be going through what might be more described as epileptic. So the question is, you know, in terms of pathology, there may have been different things that led them to those conditions when you're looking at them medically. Again, I'm repeating, I I, 
have almost exactly a half day of knowledge about this. So um, <laughs> you're on your way to a, an early 1800s medical degree, yeah. <laughs> correspondence course, my friend. Just keep at yeah. it. Uh, yeah. You'll be a doctor by the end of the year. Yeah. Hi, this is William Worm. When I'm not listening to Astonishing Legends, I'm out taking pictures of my thumb in various places around the world. Now, I will say here, not to jump ahead, Mary Roth's father, Asa Roth, saw this as a similar condition to his daughter, Mary, yes. that Lorenzi had. Yes. To them, there's a bigger connection than the one you're describing and with less definitive descriptors, we could say, or less knowledge, of course, than we do now, of course, it's been studied. But when you're just looking at it and you're a panicked parent, you're seeing like, oh my gosh, is this exactly what my daughter Mary was going through? Exactly. And it, let's get back to Stephen's book and let's talk about Mary Roth a little bit more. This is where we get to the paranormal part of this case. Mm -hmm. And this is why this story is still talked about today, why it's an astonishing legend rather than just a medical history. Mary Roth apparently developed a very unusual ability, as we mentioned a minute ago, to read things placed before her while thoroughly blindfolded. Listen to these excerpts from Stephen's book. Near the time in 1864, when she cut her arm while blindfolded, again, we're talking about Mary Roth here, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she took Dr. Trail's encyclopedia, turned to the index, traced the column till she came to the word blood, then turned to the page indicated and read the subject through. On another occasion, she took a box of her letters received from her friends and sat down, heavily blindfolded by critical, intelligent, investigating gentlemen, examined and read these letters without error or hesitancy. When Reverend J. H. Ahia, editor A. J. Smith, Mr. Coff and others misplaced and promiscuously arranged some of their own letters with Mary's, she at once proceeded to correctly draw out the intruded letters and examine them. If wrong side up, she would quickly turn them and read aloud the address thereon and throw violently away every letter, not her own, and rearranged 20 or 30 letters in the order she desired to have them. Reverend J.H. Rhea was the Methodist minister in charge at that time. A.G. Smith was editor of the Iroquois County Republican, now editor of the Danville, Illinois Times. She was also investigated by all the prominent citizens of Watsika at that time. Yeah, a bit of a performing pony of sorts, but it's pretty miraculous and people can't figure it out. They know it, this is a bit of a wonder themselves. Well, the passage goes on to say, Now, as to Mary Roth, it was our fortune to know the sweet girl who was herself a cataleptic. Disease dethroned her reason and maddened her brain until she sought her own and others' lives and the modest young lady was transformed into a screaming maniac. She had periods of exemption from raving and thus her aberrant mind conceived fancies of the queerest hue, creating the most impossible beings for associates. And conversing with them, she maintained her own side of the conversation in a usual tone of voice, while imagination supplied her created associates with language and intelligence. When in this condition, her father and mother asserted the discovery that Mary could read a book with its lids closed, and they desired us to test the correctness of what they claimed. We therefore took from our side pocket a letter enclosed in an envelope, and holding it before her bandaged eyes, said to her, 
Mary read the signature to that letter, immediately the proper name was pronounced. All right. So what's interesting about that is, let's say the blindfolds were never put on right. She's looking down her nose like everyone's thinking that's hearing that. But right. in this case, it's a letter inside of an envelope, and she's still producing the yeah. information. Or it's a yeah. book that hasn't been opened, and she's producing right. the information. So either we have a true supernatural paranormal event happening here. Mm-hmm. Or these people are all exaggerating the circumstances. And this is relating to Mary Roth, not right. Mary Lorancy Venom. This is Mary Roth. Yes, yeah. to be clear, Mary Roth. Now, of course, you have to, uh, if you don't believe in any of this, you have to go to the conclusion that she is being aided somehow, perhaps like Lady Wonder. She is being aided somehow because they're selling tickets and uh, people are lining up in the backyard to see this feat performed. But uh, were they selling tickets, Scott? No, they were not selling no. tickets. And right. in fact, they were like any parent would be petrified for their kid. Like, what are they going to do? How can they help your, how can you help your child? It's a cool trick, but you got to realize, especially back then, it's freaking people out. Yeah. And as we'll see with Lurency Venom, her parents were extremely devoutly religious of a Orthodox sect, I believe. And they did not go for this kind of stuff. This is like necromancy. I mean, this is, this is bad juju here. Uh, there's something wrong with her. This is not to be embraced. Yeah. So as we've made clear, I think by this point, it seems like Mary Roth and Mary Lorancy or Rancy Venom had very, very similar conditions. Although, as we've heard, they purportedly did not know each other. They lived 40 rods apart, as we discussed, which was across town, this small town back at this point. But there's another reason that they couldn't have known each other, because Mary Roth died in her bed at the asylum in Peoria in July of 1865. At the time of her death, Rancy Venom was only three months old and living seven miles south of Watsika. They had not even crossed paths. So this is how we get Asa Roth, Mary Roth's dad, into the picture. Based on his experience with his daughter, who had passed away 12 years prior, he managed to convince Rancy's mother and father to let him bring Dr. E.W. Stevens to investigate Rancy's condition. Stevens was a spiritist, and we've spoken about that in the spiritualist moment a few minutes ago and on the show many times before. But it's safe to say that these folks generally, from both of those moments, believed in reincarnation and the possibilities of a continued existence after death. Now, Asa probably had a pretty strong opinion about the asylum in Peoria and all the treatments his daughter had gone through, like the water treatment. And when he showed up, E.W. Stevens, Rancy was ill-mannered, calling her parents' names and warning Stevens not to approach her too closely. She was already pretty advanced in her condition by the time he managed to get Stevens into the picture. Now, eventually, she acknowledged Stevens' presence, and there was a conversation that, that here's an excerpt from it. She noted and said that he was a spiritual doctor and he would understand her. And when he asked her her name, she quickly replied, Katrina Hogan, to which he said, how old? And she said, 63 years. Where from? Germany. How long ago? Three days. How did you come? Through the air. How long will you stay? Three weeks. Hogan! <laughs> I had to get that in there. <laughs> that was pretty good. German, see? Yeah, I never heard that It's one. a strange beginning here. Again, that's probably the observations of H. Addington Bruce examining the story and the investigation thereafter into it. It's a very strange meeting in that she was recalcitrant, she wasn't very friendly, wouldn't shake his hand. She had her feet curled up on the chair, elbows on her chin, 
and she could be any sullen teenager at this point, but yeah, wouldn't shake his hand until she found out when he said, I'm a spiritual doctor and that I could possibly help. Then she perked up. And then she wanted to talk to him. Right. So she thought she was going to be poked around uh, by your regular 1870s doctor, but she found out Winchester Stevens had a speciality of being a spiritual type doctor. So that got her interested in talking. And that might be a psychological thing. It might be a spiritual thing with her. We'll see. But continuing on with the narrative of Stevens' description of the encounter, he says, After this system of conversation had proceeded for some time, she modified her manners very much, appearing to be a little penitent and confidential, and said she would be honest and tell the doctor her real name. She was not a woman, and her real name was Willie. On being asked what her father's name replied, Peter Canning, and her own name was Willie Canning, a young man, ran away from home, got into difficulty, changed his name several times, and finally lost his life, and was now here because he wanted to be, etc. She wearied with answering questions and giving details. Then she turned upon the doctor with a perfect shower of questions, such as, What is your name? Where do you live? Are you married? How many children? How many boys? How many girls? What is your occupation? What kind of a doctor? What did you come to Watsika for? Have you ever been at the South Pole, North Pole, Europe, Australia, Egypt, Ceylon, Benares, Sandwich Islands? And by a long series of questions, evinced a knowledge of geography. She next inquired after the doctor's habits and morals by questions like the following. Do you lie? Get drunk? Steal? Swear? Use tobacco? Tea? Coffee? Do you go to church? Pray? Etc. Etc. She then asked to have the same questions put to Mr. Roth. She declined to ask them direct, herself, but through the doctor. They must also be repeated through him to Mr. Venom, making them all the while some very unpleasant retorts. So she's being a little difficult here, but she's not acting like herself. Yeah. Again, could be a conditional thing where she's possibly borrowing from a, another personality trait. But this is not the Lurency people know, who generally seem to be very respectful and a pleasant young lady. It's interesting, isn't it, all the geographic locations that she lists off? Well, you know what that sounds like to me? Again, <laughs> things ring a bell with me. The Bell Witch! Yeah. It's a little bit of uh, Kate Bat's Witch, knowing all these different things and knowing which buttons to press with people and irking them. So we're not seeing quite yet that she knows a lot of inside information from the, the doctor and different people, but it is uh, also starting to ring a bell with me because I recently watched The Exorcist. Uh -huh. And The Exorcist also has an attitude of the Western doctor's approach to the behavior of Reagan McNeil, Ellen Burstyn's daughter, as she plays Chris McNeil, the famous actress at that time in the movie. They just say like, well, we don't know what's wrong with her. Physically, it doesn't seem to be anything wrong. She's just acting very strangely. And we really have no suggestions. All the tests come back okay. But if you want to try this crazy, crazy thing we've heard about called exorcism, give it a shot. Because sometimes, you know, maybe if the person believes in it or they heard it on TV and they put some stock into it, maybe something like that could help. But good luck with that. That's your business. And that's what Ellen Burstyn ends up with. Like, I've tried everything. You people have no answers. So why not look to something that's out of the box, that's spiritual in nature, for a solution? 
So I see some connections here. So after all this heated discussion and back and forth grilling, Rancy Venom collapses to the floor. But at this point, she's herself again, although she's rigid, as we talked about in catalepsy, on the floor. But she's able to speak. And at this point, she tells E.W. Stevens that she knew the evil spirit calling itself Katrina and Willie and the others. So she's acknowledging that there's something there that is lying and seems to take pleasure in lying about who it is. After talking about all these other characters for a bit, she mentions that there are many, many spirits who would like to actually come visit. But she said that there was one spirit who was an angel, and that spirit's name was Mary Roth. Well, once again, I'm reminded of something I recently watched not too long ago, and that is Surviving Death, a series on past lives, near-death experiences, really well done, directed by Ricky Stern, based on some of the findings and hosting of certain sections by journalist Leslie Kane, very well-respected journalist. Yes. You mentioned it quite a bit. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I found it very heartwarming, actually, even though it deals with death, but deals with surviving death. However, there are a couple of episodes in the middle, episode two, Mediums Part One and Mediums Part Two. And I understand why people have such a hard time with those two in that they talk about spiritual mediumship, modern day spiritual mediumship and the people who practice it, and the voices that come through, and just really just reminded me of one they talk about called Tommy Boy. This is no disrespect to the people who practice it, but he he comes across like, hi, I'm Tommy Boy. Mm -hmm. And it takes you out of it. But like, how is he going to present himself? (laughs) Yeah. uh, His voice, if it's really happening, coming through a middle-aged woman who's the medium, if that is really what's happening, he's got to use her vocal cords. And I guess she's going to talk like that, but it does... Yeah, a lot of people are like, come on, yeah. come on. So these things are all very strange now, and they were back then as well, as they have been since the beginning of time. But let's reflect briefly on what we've learned so far. So the Roth family loses a daughter to mental illness, as well as epilepsy, or possibly catalepsy, or maybe both. And during Mary Roth's horrific experiences, she's described as leading a very traumatic life, she seemed to be able to read anything put before her in spite of her being blindfolded, including letters in sealed envelopes. Twelve years later, Lurency Venom appears to be suffering from nearly identical symptoms, and in the course of the suffering, she begins speaking as though she is channeling the voices of the dead. During this, she posits that there is an angel that wishes to come through her, and her name is Mary Roth. Next, keeping in mind that spiritist and actual doctor, he's a licensed physician, uh, got through medical school and not through a correspondence course, E. Winchester Stevens is present there to investigate Lurency or Rancy Venom, and he was brought there by Mary Roth's father, Asa Roth, who seemingly had hoped to intervene in Rancy's diagnosis and possibly prevent Rancy from being committed to an asylum, or perhaps worse. And I just want to say that at the time, Asa Roth went with the prevailing diagnosis, which is, has got to be some form of uh, insanity, right? This can't be happening. This stuff isn't real. Later on, 10 years later, he'd come to believe that his daughter was of sound mind. She was not insane. She got a bum deal, sent to an asylum, but she was not insane, was of sound mind. And so was Lorenzi Venom. She also wasn't insane. This is not insanity. There's something spiritual going on here, which is being mistaken by the Western medicine of the day as being insanity. 
So that's his attitude that have changed. And, and of course, he saw what happened to his daughter in the asylum, and he didn't want that for Lurency. It's a horrible, horrible ending. And if it could be prevented, and also Lurency's mother was on board with this. She knew what was going to happen to her daughter if she were immured into an insane asylum. She's not coming out. And it's going to be a horrible, horrible existence until she dies. I'm Mary Beth Schroeder, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Boris Burgess. Now, back to the show. You know, it's funny, before we continue here, uh, based on what you just said, Forrest, I was watching today, I was taking a little break as in, in some of our final research as we were preparing for this, and my wife was watching on Netflix a show called Explained that they have, and it's like season three. In each episode, it's like they're explaining a different thing, and uh, this one was called mm-hmm. Explained Man's Best Friend. Mm dogs and it was about dogs and during the course of this there's all these different stories about dogs which is great you know that why they wag their tails and how intuitive they are and how we bred them to be friends and you know evolutionary reasons for all that but there was this one couple on the show that they had several children and two of their children i think they had three or maybe four children but two of their children were on the autism spectrum and they were having a particularly hard time with specifically their little girl and they were trying to get all this help and couldn't get any help for her And uh, she was very sensitive to her environment and having a hard time functioning. And they were getting advice from one doctor who said, you need to put her up for adoption or send her to a foster home and just move on with your life. Another doctor was like, she should go to a facility. So this advice is still coming out now for parents who are in this position. And the, the happily ever after of this is they got a couple of dogs that specialized in living with kids who were on the autism spectrum. And those dogs completely opened up that little girl's life and the little boy who is her brother. They just take care of them. And you're led to believe it wasn't a super in-depth segment. It was only a few minutes long. But you're led to believe that things really got better for those kids. And there's lots of shots of them with these dogs that are service animals for them. And the mother was just like, we were advised to kind of give up. And Mm -hmm. look at this has been going on for almost 200 years. The same thing is happening. And it's up to the parents to get to the bottom of these problems sometimes and not give in to institutionalizing someone and just saying, oh, well, we're going to sit them here and put them in cold water and put them in hot water and put them in cold water and put them in hot water and they'll get better. You know when that's not going to work as a parent. Knowing some people of different makeup and their different scenarios with their families and things that uh, were dealt to them, not everybody's able to handle it in the same way. True. Um, Absolutely. Not to get into it. It's just that some people, they're just not equipped. They're not equipped. I understand what you're saying. For something that challenging. And some people are. And those are the ones, you know, thank goodness, when presented with that, it's like, no, no, we are up to the challenge. We can do this. And then there are the people who just like... I can't handle this. And it's not going to be good for anybody. So right. other other means have to be dealt with. But yeah, it's just everybody's different. Every family, every scenario is different. But it's nice when you see people giving a second thought and reconsidering. And in this case, back then, your choices are very limited. Yes. And, and I want to be clear. I'm not also categorically saying that the foster system ha- is all bad or that uh, right, actually going, right. there's facilities that can help kids. And there are foster parents who are wonderful foster parents. I knew some growing up. Uh, so I, I didn't mean to make that implication. I'm just saying, yeah, no, of course. In terms of making that effort to solve the problem at home when you can, it seems that frequently there were professionals that were advising people, and still are to this day, advising people to take steps to 
go in a different direction from your own child. Right, so right. it's a hard yeah, thing to yeah. uh, deal with, I'm sure. Well, we're coming back to this story. We're going to talk about how Mr. Roth, Mary Roth's father, is now going to try to convince Laurency Venom that Mary Roth is a good spirit who has had the same problems or did have the same problems that she's currently having. And she'd be a good influence if she was allowed to communicate through Laurency or Rancy. He even says, quote, have your mother bring you to my house and Mary will be likely to come along and a mutual benefit may be derived from our former experience with Mary, end quote. Actually went on to basically make an appointment for Mary Roth to show up or her spirit to show up in Rancy's body. Listen to this uh, excerpt from Dr. Stevens' The Watsika Wonder, the religio-philosophical publishing house, Kindle edition. Quote, but will you come back for the sake of your friends? Yes, sir. When will you come back? At 12 o'clock. But the family will want rest. Can't you come sooner? Yes, sir, I can. How soon can you come? At nine o'clock, sir. Will you come at nine? I will. And so she did. It's like making an appointment with a spirit. It's like, uh, so can it, what's good for you? What's good time for your spirit to pop over and take over yeah. this girl's body? No, they're going to want it. They're going to be asleep by then. Can you come earlier? Yes, great. That's great. Thank you. Do you have a secretary? <laughs> well, the, you know, yeah. It's interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, as we've seen before, is there a sense of time? Do they know time? I know. That's what uh, I'm asking. This goes back to the Mothman and yeah. Indrid Cold and you know, events, uh, as Rich Hanna might say, it's not being able to figure out exactly what time they're supposed to happen. Time seems to be off, but that's a different scenario. You're talking about interdimensional creatures. This is another dimension completely. You're talking about the, the spirit world. But there's another thing I'm going to hint at here, which may be a connection other than what we're thinking about right now. I know that's pretty vague, but uh, I'll wait till I uh, make my spiel on it. That's it. More, even more confusing than the things I usually yes. say. But, um, or the pint glass scenario. Yes, yes the pint glass which... <laughs> that I did not do a good job of describing. Anyway, Mary Roth purportedly <laughs> right. had control of Rancy's body for about a week when Mary's mom, Lorinda, and her sister, Minerva, were approaching for a visit with their departed daughter and sister now occupying Rancy's body. When they were still far down the street, Rancy yelled, quote, there comes my ma and sister Nervy. End quote. Nervy was Minerva's childhood nickname that Mary referred to her by when uh, she was younger, but now Nervy at this point was 34 years old. After all this is going down, friends and family of the Venoms tried to convince them to let their seemingly possessed daughter go to the Roth house and stay there for a while to visit. The Venoms, however, were reluctant, though, because they knew that it was difficult to care for Rancy, especially in her condition, and they didn't want to impose. But after being eventually convinced, on February 11th, 1878, they sent her over to the Roth house. Uh, when asked how long she would stay, she replied, the angels will let me stay till sometime in May, referring to Mary Roth's spirit in Rancy's body. Mm-hmm. There were also skeptics of everything, including a man named Dr. Jewett, who said the case was humbug and was quoted as saying, quote, humor her whims and she will get well, end quote. There was this other quote about the naysayers force. This made me think of you uh, when I heard this one from the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Quote, others with an exalted opinion of their wonderful perceptions would say, it's all a put on, etc., etc. Yet none of the persons expressing such opinions have ever called to see the girl or derived any information from those in charge of her, end quote. Yeah, imagine that, that he didn't have the internet back then from which you could hide behind to make your opinions. Yes, it, it's so interesting to me when how, how much critical flotsam and jetsam comes your way from people who haven't even listened to the an entire episode. That or looking at, let's say, videos they see being disseminated and they have an opinion of its veracity just from their screen at home. Yes, indeed. Without being well, an expert on anything, really. Um, not that we are. We're not, not, that we're we not are. experts on anything not, either. Not but, an authority uh, we, on anything, as John Keel <laughs> Right. Yeah. In this case, though, the criticisms that were thrown at the families, especially Asa Roth, the father. Yeah. When I read those, it's like, yeah, nothing's changed. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's all like, the same. You're just making up a story to get attention, or yeah. uh, you're making a million dollars, or in this case, maybe you're making a hundred bucks back then. Yeah. Can you prove any of this outside of your family? Is this any of this provable? It's like, well, no, not really. But we have a group of respectable people who've looked at it, and uh, you got to go by their word. Well, during this time that Rancy was staying over now, and this is again, this is Rancy Venom is staying now at the Roth family household while she is being occupied by the deceased Mary Roth, the spirit of Mary Roth. During all this time, as Mary Roth, she always recognized folks who she would have known back when she was alive, having passed over a dozen years prior to coming back to the house now. One thing I did want to touch base on, and this gets a little complicated, but I want to acknowledge the critics of this case because, again, if you remove some of the observations that Lorancy Venom, as apparently possessed by Mary Roth, was making, ones that seem to present knowledge from beyond, if you take those out of the picture, then you'd have to be considering the possibility of a diagnosis of what was formerly called multiple personality disorder, or MPD, but is now referred to as dissociative identity disorder, DID. It's important to note, however, this diagnosis didn't exist at the time this story took place. And additionally, it's controversial to this day. And we'll come back to this in our conclusions. But because we know we're bound to get an email or two about that, yes, of course, the idea of that diagnosis did occur to us to explore, and we're going to be touching on it in a little while. There were also circumstances where Rancy, as Mary Roth, would recognize this woman that she knew as a widow back when she'd been alive, but couldn't seem to understand that she had now been remarried, this widow. Yeah, apparently that happened a couple of times with people that Mary Roth, when she was alive, should have known of or recognized, but as Lurency, or if you want to take it as her being in Lurency's body, didn't recognize these people, it was claimed that they're older, right. at least 10 years older, their appearance has changed, they're dressed differently, the hairstyle's different. And she did not immediately recognize them, but other people she did. Yeah, and another thing I should have said a few minutes ago is that when she saw Nervy, and she called her Nervy, that was the childhood nickname, but she was now Nervy, Minerva, was now 34 and married. Her husband's name was Dr. Alter. And Mary Roth's spirit in Lorancy's body didn't seem to understand that her sister was now married. Although eventually she got to know Dr. Alter and respected and communicated with Dr. Alter, there was always a disconnect about understanding that that was Nervy's husband. So to your point. Mm -hmm. And Scott, here's another case where it's a different type of confirmation by the parents who are with her at the moment. So it was agreed by Lurency's parents that she could go live with the Roths 
for a while. Right. Temporarily, because yeah. they were so overjoyed and so convinced. And of course, they were, Laurency's parents were kind of blindsided, prostrated, as it says in the book, knocked to the floor. Just like, I, I guess you can live with them for a while because their own daughter would not recognize them, her own parents, her own physical, biological parents at the time. She was polite, I think, at this point, but didn't seem to know anything about them treated them as strangers, I think politely, but yes, she was really emotionally attached and overjoyed to see what she considered her her real parents, uh, I guess in a spiritual way, right? Asa Roth and, and the mother. So she goes off to live with them for a little bit. I think mainly Laurency's parents are just saying, well, let's see where this goes. Obviously, she knows a lot about them. There's something weird going on here. Let's let this happen. She seems to be overjoyed. Also, keep in mind, this was supposed to be presented as a curative experiment that it's claimed by Dr. Stevens that this may cure her condition of these fits. There might be something in there that's spiritual that's beyond Western medicine as they knew it at the time. Let's let this happen, and uh, hopefully this might be a good treatment for her. So anyway, she left the house, as or it says here, uh, was removed February 11th, and this is when Laurency, with the permission of her parents, went to live with the Roths, and on the way to the Roth's house, an event occurred that vastly strengthened belief in the reality of her claims. Now, I'm reading from the book here. The Venoms and the Roths lived at opposite ends of Watsika. But the latter family, that would be the Roths, at the time of Mary's death in 1865, had been occupying a dwelling in a central section of town. Arrived at this house, Lurency unhesitatingly turned to enter it and seemed much astonished when told that her home was elsewhere. Why, said she, in a positive tone, I know that I live here. It was indeed with some difficulty that she was persuaded to continue her journey. But once at its end, all signs of disappointment vanished, and she passed gaily from room to room, identifying objects which she had never seen before, but which had been well known to Mary Roth. Her pseudo-parents were in ecstasies of joy. Truly, they said to each other, our daughter who has been dead has been restored to us, and anxiously they inquired of her how long they might hope to have her with them. The angels, was her response, will let me stay till some time in May, and oh, how happy I am. Those are the rules. You can't stay forever. That's yeah. not her saying that. That's me saying that. Yeah, right, right. There are rules here. You can't do this forever. You got to come back at some point. And the passage goes on. Happy and contented she proved herself, and, which was remarked by all who saw her, entirely free from the maladies that had so sorely beset both the living Lurency and the dead Mary. For her life as Lurency, she appeared to have no remembrance, but she readily and unfailingly recollected everything connected with the career of Mary. She was well aware also that she was masquerading, as it were, in a borrowed body. There's a lot of these little incidents here. And here's another yes. one that struck a chord with me. This almost gave me chills. And this is specifically due to the nature of doing our show and having covered so many angles on these types of stories. This on the surface doesn't sound creepy at all, but I, I want to share it first and then I'll explain why it struck a chord with me. Mm-hmm. Quote, three days after she came to Mr. Roth's, while looking at him and seeming to have been in a sort of retrospective reverie, she asked, quote, Paul, who was it that used to say confound it? and laughing very heartily when she saw that he understood it to be himself. That being a common expression of his in the time of her girlhood, 12 to 20 years ago. 
Mm. That on the surface seems like a sweet memory. And I recognize there's going to be people in our audience who have not heard many of our episodes. But there's this one series we call back to frequently when it comes to hauntings from November of 2020. The two parts we did on the siren call of Hungry Ghosts, which was connected to a book by the same name. Elements of that story will never leave me. And now when I see stories mm. like this legend of Lawrence Venom being possessed by a girl who had passed 12 or 13 years prior, I can't help but latch onto some of the ideas from Siren Call about that. For me, there is something that's very eerie about this exchange. First of all, it's so cloying and needy almost. Like, mm-hmm. I need you to believe. Quote, who was it that used to say confound it, pa? You know, and he says, <laughs> oh, that was me. She laughs it off, but in my mind, you're busted. How could you know all this other stuff and not know Mm -hmm. it was your dad that said that expression? Mm. It's it's like when the Terminator pretends to be John Connor in Terminator 2 on the phone. He (laughs) says, why is Wolfie barking so much? And the T-1000 that's already killed his mom is like, he's just upset. The catch is the dog's name is not Wolfie. Bam, your foster parents are dead. So (laughs) it it just feels disingenuous. I got more observations on this, but I will say the startling nature of details that this spirit seems to churn out Mm -hmm. that are very, very convincing to witnesses and seem highly accurate, that can be a smokescreen. And what's crazy about that observation is that you have to get past the, do I believe in the paranormal or not, to even entertain the idea of this smokescreen that's coming from somewhere else. So what I'm saying is here, yes, I think it's plausible that something paranormal is happening here, but I also think it's possible it's not who or what you think it is at all. It might Mm. just be an elaborate con, and I'm not talking about a con among the living. Mm. Let's come back to some of these other events that seem to continue to prove that Mary Roth is occupying Rancy Venom's body. There, there's another time when she saw these two ladies coming to visit. It's like everyone that comes, it, it's some kind of test that she feels compelled to show off at how much <laughs> she knows. She immediately says to them, Auntie Parker and Nellie, which is what Mary Roth called these two ladies when she was alive. She then adds, do you remember how Nervy and I used to come to your house and sing? Purportedly, she brought this up out of the blue. No reference had been made to it, which is pointed out in the book, which I think what they're doing in these cases of these moments of what are supposed to be veracity of her identifying people is they're trying mm-hmm. to say, look, none of us brought this up. She brought it up first, and she said this thing that there's no way she could have known if she was Rancy Venom. You know, the hits keep coming with these overlapping things. And Forrest, I think you had wanted to talk about that box of letters that comes up, right? Yeah, you could view this as a test. And you have to keep in mind, this is not just 14 days straight in a laboratory at Duke University. Yeah. (laughs) The cognitive behavioral studies, uh, the uh, cognitive studies lab there. This is just living with her. And these little incidents would come up. And of course, it struck these people is pretty crazy. They were dumbstruck that she would know these things. How could she know this? Yeah. Again, they didn't know each other at the time. These families didn't really know each other at the time. You have to wonder, is a 13 to 14-year-old girl that savvy to be such a master of human behavior and, and studying people to do what they call like a, a muscle reading, like they claim some psychics do, is that they, they read you shifting or twitching and they can put that together. It reminds me a lot of the Bell Witch. Right. Again, not saying that a, a young person couldn't be that clever, like they're a master manipulator, but how likely is that? How likely are they, quote unquote, throwing their voices? Or even uh, with uh, Jeff the Mongoose. <laughs> it's yeah. like, what kind of weirdness is going on? And is it more likely that there's something else going on rather than just a precocious tween 
trying to get attention here. So this is another aspect of that. One evening in the latter part of March, Mr. Roth was sitting in the room waiting for tea and reading the paper, Mary being out in the yard. He asked Mrs. Roth if she could find a certain velvet headdress that Mary used to wear the last year before she died. If so, to lay it on the stand and say nothing about it, to see if Mary would recognize it. Mrs. Roth readily found and laid it on the stand. The girl soon came in and immediately exclaimed as she approached the stand, Oh, there is my headdress I wore when my hair was short. She then asked, Ma, where is my box of letters? Have you got them yet? Mrs. Roth replied, Yes, Mary, I have some of them. She at once got the box with many letters in it. As Mary began to examine them, she said, Oh, Ma, here is a collar I tatted. Ma, why did you not show to me my letters and things before? The collar had been preserved among the relics of the lamented child as one of the beautiful things her fingers had wrought before Laurency was born. And so Mary continually recognized every little thing and remembered every little incident of her girlhood. And for those who don't know, uh, tatting is an old-fashioned word there. Uh, it means a delicate handmade lace formed usually by looping and knotting with a single cotton thread and a small shuttle, or it's the process or act of making a, a tatting. So it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's not a flaming skull with a dagger through it tattoo. Uh, yeah, I was curious. I was glad you looked that up because I didn't know what it meant. Like I said, they held on to it because their their dead daughter had made this. And it's if you've ever seen really antiqued tanning or doilies, they're very intricate. And she spent a lot of time making this creative thing and they held on to it. And that's, uh, of course, you could say, well, yeah, of course, Lurency is going to pick up on that and jump to that conclusion. And she just happened to be right. It's 50-50. Right. You know, she said like, oh, I made that. It's like, well, no, you didn't actually. Auntie B made that. You yeah, didn't right. make that in right. your life. Oh, yeah, well, I must be mistaken. <laughs> so, Andy. Oh, Andy, I, I made the tatting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, what I'm saying is that you could be guessing at this stuff and get it wrong. Yeah. That's it true. It is easier, I believe, to lead on people who are emotionally heartbroken and desperate because they want to believe. Wow. I read this in one of Brad Steiger's books about uh, a heartbroken dad whose young, you know, 20-year-old daughter went missing. She'd been missing for years and years. And he was just heartbroken, you know, just depressed, couldn't get out of his chair, uh, just, you know, longed for his daughter. And there, there was no answer. She was missing. She was taken. She's probably presumed dead. This girl shows up at the door, knocks, and people can see her, other relatives, behind him, right? So he answers the door, and they can hear her. And they said, Dad, it's me. It's your daughter. And, of course, they're stunned. They're freaked out, like, oh, my God, she's back. It's been three or four years. She's been missing. She's, it's your daughter. I'm home. And he was crestfallen, and he shut the door. And he turned back, and he looked crushed, and he just sat back down in his chair. And they said, what are you, well, Dan, what are you doing? That's so-and-so. What, what, what are you doing? He's like, that's not her. That's not her. Right. And he knew. Yeah. What is that? That's an entity. It's not somebody, it, it, what kind of an actor would do that? It looked exactly like her from the other, you know, the reports of the other right. relatives. Like, right. oh my God, that is her. He's like, no, that's not her. Yeah. Something is trying to get me to react to that. Right. That creeped me out. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the, these kind of events are going on and on. They happen over and over with Rancy seemingly recognizing numerous people and personal effects that there's no way she could have known about, stuff that just only pertained to Mary Roth. Now, on top of that, Rancy, as Mary Roth, seems to be completely checked out of her own body. She does not recognize mm -hmm. her own family during this time. 
That's not a hard thing to pretend not to do, right? But still, that's what they said. Uh, there was another time when she actually made a prediction that Mary Ross' brother, or I guess if she is Mary, Frank would be need to be carefully watched because he was going to get super sick. And at the time, he was totally fine. And then sure enough, about when she said it would happen, he got deathly ill and they had to send for the doctor to come and look after him. Mm-hmm. Mary Roth's spirit predicted that her brother was going to get sick. And yeah. uh, there was this whole process where they had to get Dr. Stevens, would have to unexpectedly would have been back home because what happened was they they sent for Dr. Stevens to come look at Frank and her spirit also knew that he was not where they thought he would be, how to find him. Right. So there's that omniscience that you're talking about, like when you tapped into Jeff the Talking Mongoose or the Bell Witch, there's this thing <laughs> yeah. where they seem to have this data that nobody could have. Well, eventually after all this visiting and recollecting on May 7th, apparently Rancy or Lorancy Venom being presently possessed by Mary Roth sat Mary Roth's mother, Lorinda Roth, down and said that Lorancy was coming back to her body. She seemed very sad, according to Stephen's book. She sat down, and in a few moments, Lorancy reappeared and said, where am I? I was never here before, keeping in mind that she's in the Roth household. Mrs. Roth told her she'd been brought there by her daughter, Mary, to cure her body. She apparently then said, can you stay present until we send for your parents? And she said no, and in a moment, the spirit of Mary Roth returned. At one point, she was talking to E.W. Stevens, Dr. Stevens, who wrote The Watsika Wonder, and she mentioned cutting her arm, and she asked Stevens if he'd ever seen the scar, and when he said no, she slipped up her left sleeve to show it to him, apparently forgetting that she was in Lorenzi's body at that moment. And when she realized that, she said, quote, this is not the arm, that one's in the ground, end quote. Hmm. That's spooky, creepy, Frankenstein-y. Uh, so, <laughs> Let me show you my arm scar. Oh, no, wait, never mind. That one's in the ground. She told another story of going into the country with some men 20 years prior when she was still alive, when she would have been about six, I guess, to get a load of hay. And she detailed things that happened on that trip, which two of the men present actually remembered. She explained that she could communicate with other spirits, too, including the departed Dr. E.W. Stevens' own daughter, whom she offered the body of Rancy to, So he may visit with her, but apparently everyone thought that was a bad idea. That's not elaborated on. I don't know why they're agreeing to all this other stuff, and they're just like, no, let's not do that. So I don't know what that's about. At one point, in an actual parlor trick that, yes, took place in the parlor of a house, Mary Roth abandoned Lorancy's body, which was limply resting on another attending person's shoulder in the room. And she took over a gentleman that was also present, causing him to make an impressive energetic speech proving that she was, in fact, Mary Roth while she was within him. And then she went back to Rancy's body. So now we have another separate individual who has been taken over by her or whatever is purporting to be her. On another occasion, the following happened. Reading from the book. The manner in which she acted for a considerable time after coming into Mr. Roth's family was very strange to many. Sitting down to the tea table on one occasion, Mrs. Roth asked, Now, Mary, what shall I help you to? She answered, Oh, nothing. I thank you, Ma. I'll go to heaven for my tea. Suiting the action to the word, off she went into a quiet trance, or to heaven as she termed it, and so remained till the family had eaten. When she returned to her normal state, being again asked, she said she had been to tea, and the question was put, Mary, what do you eat, and how do you eat it? Her answer was, Oh, Ma, if I could tell you, you could not understand it. 
Mm. This, of course, reminded me of the scene from Defending Your Life between <laughs> Albert Brooks and Rip Torn, which I want to do right now. Uh, Let's do this right now. Where Now, just to wait. set the stage, Albert Brooks is in purgatory. He's on trial trying to yeah. prove that he should move forward and not be sent back to Earth for a do-over. Right. What does that really mean? Is eating really important? Yeah. So uh, here's the scene. Now, I'll be Albert Brooks' character, and you be Rip Torn. Okay. Okay? Okay. Wait a second. Are we in the in the sushi uh, place? No, no, no. This is in Rip Torn's office in Purgatory, because Rip Torn's supposed to be I defending see. his literally his defense attorney. And so okay. Albert Brooks is upset because Rip Torn didn't come to court one day when he was trying to defend his life. So he says, where were you? I'm just curious. I tell you, but you wouldn't understand. Don't treat me like a moron. Try me. I was trapped near the inner circle of thought. I don't understand. I told you. <laughs> right. So there's that scene. <laughs> right. That, which is, that's a very funny movie. My other favorite one is that they're in the sushi bar, right? In the sushi restaurant. And yeah. uh, Albert Brooks is looking over the stuff. And there's like, you know, regular California rolls and nice stuff. And then there's a big tray of what looks like colorful gummy worms. Yes. Yeah. And he asks the sushi chef, like, oh, what about that? Can I have some of that? And the guy goes, no, you're going to throw up. <laughs> so it's, it's too advanced for him because yeah. his, he's got a little brain, right? He's a little brain, uh, Riptor, Riptor, they're the, they're the big brains. And they can handle that. That's a question, though. Like, so why can't she, how is she eating? She's occupying someone else's body, but she's going away to eat. She's not eating with the family. It's strange. And there's a reference in the book to uh, this famous case. There were all these, apparently, in the Victorian era, there were these women. They were like the fasting women of the Victorian era. Yes. And one of them was a woman named yeah. Molly Fancher who was called the mystery of Brooklyn or something like that, who just laid mm -hmm. in her bed, not eating. And in the book, they talk about how she was spiritually fed, which I guess is what they're implying here. Yeah, that happens. You know what? That's funny. On the opposite end of that spectrum, I do wonder watching The Exorcist, wondering about people going through and also watching the, the terrific series Evil, but it's terrific, I think, and deals with some possession. And you wonder about people who go through days even. Well, Annalise Michelle, days of not eating and, and they're trying to eat. She, these people aren't wanting to. You can't even feed them and they still survive. So the, the body can draw on amazing reserves. You can survive, but you can't survive indefinitely. Right. And you do wonder, you know, your cognitive function starts to fail. You're, you do need water. You know, the, remember the rule of threes? three days without water, three weeks without food, three hours without shelter, or about the times that you can, the average person can last. So they don't seem to be in distress. Somehow she's getting by, but it is odd. Yeah. It is like you're not going to understand. It also reminds me of the Count of St. Germain where he would throw nice big parties for people and have great food, but he'd be eating gruel. Yeah. What's going on there? It's a mystery to me, as is much in yeah. this case. The other thing that's interesting to me is how easily they seem to be swapping spirits, where they so, one spirit would come in, another one would leave. At one point, uh, they would ask Mary Roth, like, as she occupied Lorancy Venom's body, where's Lorancy? And Mary would say, quote, she's in heaven taking lessons, and I'm here taking lessons too. Hmm. Well, on May 21st of 1878, apparently Mary Roth informed everyone that she would be leaving Rancy's body and that Rancy would return home all right today. Mary went around to say goodbye to all of her friends and neighbors and told all the folks who did not previously know Rancy Venom that they should continue to visit her. She told them to tell Dr. Stevens that she was going to heaven and Rancy is coming home as well. She told them the angels had said that the body, meaning Rancy Venom's body, was cured. She cried at the thought of leaving her family, but said when she got to heaven, all tears would be wiped away and she would be happy. 
Mr. Roth actually sent the following letter to Dr. Stevens on May 22nd, 1878. Thank God and the good angels, the dead is alive and the lost is found. I mailed you a letter yesterday at half past 10 o'clock a.m. stating that Mary had told us she would go away and Rancy return at 11 o'clock the 21st of May. Now I write you that at half past 11 o'clock a.m., Minerva called at my office with Rancy Venom and wanted me to take her home, which I did. She called me Mr. Roth and talked with me as a young girl would, not being acquainted. I asked her how things appeared to her if they seemed natural. She said it seemed like a dream to her. She met her parents and brothers in a very affectionate manner, hugging and kissing each one in tears of gladness. She clasped her arms around her father's neck a long time, fairly smothering him with kisses. I saw her father just now, 11 o'clock. He says she's been perfectly natural and seems entirely well. You see my faith in writing you yesterday morning instead of waiting until she came. So again, that's from The Watsika Wonder by Dr. E.W. Stevens. So now we're into the recovery phase. It seems that like after all this unusual behavior and spirit exchanges that Mary Lorancy or Rancy Venom was now back in her own body and seemingly healed. Here is a letter from Lorancy's mom, Lorinda, to a journalist who had previously written about the now infamous case. Watsika, Illinois, July 9th, 1878. Dear friend, Mary L. Venom is perfectly and entirely well and perfectly natural. For two or three weeks after her return home, she seemed a little strange to what she had been before she was taken sick last summer, but only, perhaps, the natural change that had taken place with the girl, and except it seemed to her as though she had been dreaming or sleeping, etc. Lawrence, has been smarter, more intelligent, more industrious, more womanly, and more polite than before. We give the credit of her complete cure and restoration to her family, to Dr. E.W. Stevens, and Mr. and Mrs. Roth by their obtaining her removal to Mr. Roth's, where her cure was perfected. We firmly believe that had she remained at home, she would have died, or we would have been obliged to send her to the insane asylum, and if so, that she would have died there, and that further, that I could not have lived but a short time with the care and trouble devolving on me. Several of the relatives of Mary Lorancy, including ourselves, now believe she was cured by spirit power and that Mary Roth controlled the girl. Mrs. Lorinda Venom. So, as you can imagine, there was no shortage of investigation into this case. In fact, it turns out pretty much everyone who was anyone in the field of psychical research at the time threw their hat in the ring on it. And Forrest has done an amazing job of tying that all together and connecting the dots on the much larger picture of the varying philosophies behind what may have been at play here, from a possible hoax to an actual spiritual experience. Even if it was spiritual in nature, however, you don't always know what you're dealing with when you get messages from beyond, do you? The Investigation, Theories, and Conclusions in Part 2. That's going to wrap up part one of our series on Mary Lorancy Benham, or the Watsika Wonder. We'll be back in two weeks with part two. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Esther. I-A-M. M-A-R-Y. Like the bug. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. W-O-R-M. Mary, 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 Mary. Like the bug. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. 
Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.